The Pokes Report podcast is sponsored by Stilly Barber Co. That's right. Downtown Barbershop is now Stilly Barber Co., still owned by Randall, giving out the best haircuts in town, still located at 609 South Main Street here in Stillwater. You can give them a call for an appointment, 405-269-8590. You can check them out on the web at stillybarber.co. Randall and Joe still giving out the best haircuts around. Regular haircuts, skin and razor fades. They obviously have beard care as well, beard trims, beard shaves. It's a wonderful blend of beard balm, beard oil, and just a little bit of steam. And of course, every service includes their hot towel and razor neck shave. It's the best place in town. And of course, Randall brings his dog in, Blue. Blue's a great dog. I love Blue. Be sure to check Stilly Barber Co. out at 609 South Main Street here in Stillwater. Just give them a call for an appointment, 405-269-8590, or you can check them out on the web at stillybarber.co. Welcome into the Pokes Report podcast. Zach Lancaster here alongside Brian Murphy. Uh it's a little bit different of a schedule this week. Uh, we typically will go about a week in between recording, uh, but we have a special guest that decided to join us today. I appreciate your uh, appreciate your time. We have Dave Hunziker, the Cowboy Radio Network, and Oklahoma State University. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's you actually have a schedule. I'm not sure with ours we ever it, it's kind of hit and miss with us. So it's, I'm glad somebody's organized. Well, it's like so we look at. Like a Monday, Tuesday, yeah, and then something will happen with me, or something will happen with Brian, yeah. or or Little League baseball. So it's like, hey, we can't go Tuesday. Do you want to do Thursday? Well, I'm busy Thursday. Okay, well, what about late Friday? Uh, let's do Friday, Saturday morning. Okay, well, that works. As long as we get a, a you typically one a week. We try to try to be good. It's a great thing about podcasting. See, it's different than radio because you can do it pretty much any time, and yeah. people will consume it when they consume it. So that's the great thing. Whereas the old yeah. traditional terrestrial radio, you you show up at this time or. They come looking for you. Well, and I guess that gets to do both. I was going to say, yeah, I just, you get both. I had Robert's show today. I was 10 to 1, and uh, Robert was gracious enough to stop in on his own show and give me a little update. So I figured we could start there. I know we're only, what, six days into fall camp, I think is what it is. Yeah. So we don't know too much, but today was the first day of, of full pads. You know, guys are we're, we're finding out who's who and, and kind of, you know, position battles and, and stuff like that. So obviously, you know, I, I don't want you to go too deep into it because I don't right, want you to get right, in trouble right. or anything. But, you know, early on, what, are, what have you seen so far? Well, there's a lot of talent defensively in the back end, but it's inexperienced. I think that's one thing, you know, what Thomas Harper's played a fair amount. I don't remember how many snaps he played last year, 275, 300, Something enough like to matter. So he's played. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of talk about, you know, Kendall Daniels, the redshirt freshman, what he brings to the table. Of course, Jason Taylor returns. Jabbar Muhammad started the Fiesta Bowl. When he and Corey Black have played, sometimes in crisis, they seem to have held up pretty well. Uh, Muhammad, I think, in particular, has, has held up, you know, again, having started the Fiesta Bowl, he, he's held up very well and played a little bit more. So that, that certainly has my attention. We're all anxious to see how the running back situation plays out. That's probably my greatest worry. And defensive line-wise, every bit as good as advertised. I mean, it's just loaded with multiple guys, two if not three at every position, and they'll be probably about as good as anybody in the country there. Uh, I want to jog your memory or try to have you jog your memory here. Speaking of Jabbar Muhammad, you know, I've talked to Robert the past couple of weeks has there been a player in your mind that, and, and I don't want this to sound bad or anything, so I'm not trying to take a shot at Jabbar, but has there been a player that, that you've seen that could kind of get away with, with some pass interference and just kind of play right on the edge as well as he had in his short time? Well, he does, and that's really when you're playing the way 
we want to play defensively, that's the world you live in. I mean, that's where we used to always get so frustrated with Gary Patterson's teams. You know, they would lead the conference, if not the nation, in pass interference. Well, the thought is they won't flag you every time. Yeah. I mean, if they did, we'd be there until midnight on a weekly basis. We're not going to do that. So they're not going to flag every one. How many of those can you get away with? And so now we live on the other side of that equation in that, you know, we're the ones that are playing really rough and really physically. So, you know, part of it is for us, this is a relatively new way of, of playing defense. We didn't used to play that way. I mean, you know, we didn't used to play press man all the time and, and get after people the way we have the last few years with Coach Knowles as defensive coordinator and now with Coach Mason taking over. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's a philosophy thing. And, 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 again, we just have to look down the road at the many years Gary Patterson coached at TCU where we saw it on a regular basis. And a lot of those guys that he coached ended up in the NFL. Some are still playing in the league today. Yeah, and that's something, you know, you hit on Knowles. You know, he was, he was so good in the, the three to four years of kind of piling everything together and, and really – putting it on the field but when you look at some of the talent that's come through I mean how uh, you know Jark Bernard Converse before he transferred how good he was the leap Christian Holmes had from year one to year two uh, you look at Corey Black you look at Jabbar Muhammad you know DeMarco Jones out of Booker T he's starting to really step up um, I, a guy I'm most excited to see and I don't know how much we'll see of him is DeKelvion Beeman I think he has all the talent in the world and when you think about him he should have been a senior in high school last year Right. He comes in a year early, so technically he should only be a freshman. So I, I think that puts him light years ahead. Same with Jay, uh, Jordan Reagan out of Bigsby. I think he's going to have a real chance. So there's been some really, really good prospects come through Oklahoma State throughout the years. I mean, guys that have been drafted, guys that have all Big 12. But when you look at the collection that Oklahoma State's had the last three to four years and then moving forward, I mean, it's weird having a really good defense. Well, and he, you know, and, and Kendall Daniels at six four and two hundred pounds. I mean, if if you want to get into the guy who physically looks like he has the best long term NFL prospects, he might have the best long term NFL prospects from a physical standpoint yeah. of anybody on the team. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. because at six four at that position, that's a really Trey, big deal. Trey Flowers two point Oh yeah, well, except faster. And he and he right. already looks better than than I mean physically he looks way better. Yes. Cuz I remember I was uh we were at Walmart one night me and my wife um and it was maybe maybe 8:45 9 o'clock at night and this would have been his freshman year maybe third week of August and I'm walking down the frozen food aisle and I'm like that kid looks really familiar. But he looks really good. And I couldn't place it for two or three hours. And we finally get home, uh, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I think that was Kendall Daniels. And, it, I mean, he, he was 6'3", six, 6'4", six, yeah. uh, and he's about 10 to 15 pounds heavier this year, but it's, it's a good heavy. I mean, he looks really, really good. He does. And, you know, here's the deal, though. You're replacing two All-Americans. Yeah. We've never done that on defense here. We've had two All-Americans one time before in the 80s, but Leslie O'Neill came back for a year. Yeah. We've never done that before, so that's that, that's uncharted territory for us. The rea- you know, if you can get through this year, and let's say you do win ten games, to me, that's a big leap forward as a program because the amount of losses that you had, the relative inexperience in the back end, if you can still win ten games or so, not saying that they will, but if you do, then that's a big leap forward. We have not nor do that many teams anywhere in college football recover well from those types of losses. Most teams don't. So if you can continue sort of picking up where you left off last year and have that type of season, to me that's an indication, okay, you've taken another step here to be able to pull that off. Because you look at the seasons we've had consecutively, 
where we were really, really good, you had everybody coming back. Mm. 16 to 17, for example. 15 to 16. 10 to 11. Were teams that you had lots and lots and lots of key guys back. That's not really true this year. It isn't some positions, but not in a lot of places. You, You know, obviously your leading receiver and leading rusher are not back from last year, so there's a lot to replace. Yeah. Well, and one of the beauties of this team, the experience up front, I think, is going to help the inexperience that we have in the, on the backside because if we're playing press man, that means your corners are on the receivers. They can't get those quick outs. They can't get the quick passes that they're going to need to throw to get away from Trace Ford, to get away from Colin Oliver, who's going to be in the backfield at the snap. Yeah, and then, then there's a lot of – there's just so many guys you can rotate in up front. and You know, Tyler Lacey, they'll be doing some different things with him, using him in different ways – They'll be using a lot of these guys in different ways, if nothing else, to try to get the best players on the field as much as possible. And in many cases, that means, you know, maximizing how many defensive linemen you can play in various roles. So there won't be, you know, you you even lost some guys that contributed significantly last year, and you still may not skip a beat. So we're in great shape at that spot. It makes all the difference in the world. We had so many years where we barely had enough defensive linemen even to finish games. I mean, I think back... 2010, you know, to some extent, 2011. I mean, it took us, we did not sign a single defensive lineman in what would have been Les Miles' last signing class, which was 04. Yeah, that's true. It took us 10 years to recover from that. Yeah. well, I mean, It literally took 10 years to recover from that because we shot for the moon on a bunch of high-profile guys yeah. nationally and missed on all of them and then didn't have any backups ready as far as signees were concerned. And it took us 10 years to get out of that. Well, you think you're seeing that kind of now with the offensive line. I think the offensive line is finally yeah. starting to get back Same to thing. it. But you look at that last year at Joe Wickline, and he didn't really bring yep. in anybody. And they've been through a few offensive line coaches. And, and now, I mean, you look at this year, you know, you were you were scared, you know, when it, March and April because you're seeing seven, eight scholarship guys. Everyone's injured. You don't have the transfers that have come in yet. You don't know if the JUCO guys are going to play out. And then you get to August, and it's they've got 25. You've got Caleb Etienne, who's about – 30, 40, 50 pounds lighter. Tyrone Weber has put on about 30 to 35 pounds. He looks really good. Uh, Hunter Woodard, I think, is going to be really good. Preston Wilson, I'm excited to see what he can do at center. You obviously don't have a Danny Gudlewski or a Josh Sills right now. But when you look at the depth, when you look at Jason Brooks and how he could plug in, I, I, I think the offensive line has a chance, in theory, to be better than they were last year. And they, they were solid at times. They weren't great. but Well, they got better as year went along. Yeah. I mean, the first two games were – nothing to write home about and then from that point forward there was there was a lot of improvement a ton of improvement and you saw what happened when they had the injuries you know when Godleski went down there was a drop-off I mean if Godleski the reality is if he stays healthy then I don't think you lose to Baylor in the Big 12 championship game I I think you win that game I I think he makes that much of a difference as does obviously Jalen Warren being healthy and the you know you're talking about the offensive line the good thing is Graduate transfers came into play. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time that Wickline had left, we were just getting into the mode of graduate transfers being allowed. We did not have that luxury when we were short on defensive linemen. We were able to take a number of graduate transfer offensive linemen to really sort of plug-and-play guys. I mean, guys, you think about, uh, oh, Saleco from UAB and the young man from Cal that we had. The names escape me. Oh, uh Trying to remember his name. I'll think of it in a moment. Godlevsky. Of course, Josh Sills was an ordinary transfer. Uh, and I know I'm leaving guys out. We had a lot of graduate transfers that we got a lot out of that really probably saved us from an offensive line standpoint when 
we were you know, scrambling to have enough guys to put out there. Well, so whenever you go to practice, I know that, you know, at this point it's kind of, I'm guessing, kind of watching the whole team, taking it all in. Whenever it's going for game prep, do you watch a, a certain group that, that either has, has struggled, that has excelled? What is it in game prep that you kind of would, would it go for? It depends on the time of year. The first thing I do, especially once we get into the season, is take inventory. Make sure everybody's practicing there's no changes in the depth. I mean, that is the first thing I'm looking for is, okay, is somebody not out there that should be? And if they are, if they aren't out there, find out what's going on. That's the very first thing I do. So that's, the, that's the, probably the most important thing is make sure everybody is accounted for. And then really for me, just watching the team periods and, and watching, you know, the scouts on the ones, whether it's, you know, and I'll, I'll run back and forth between offense and defense because at that point in the year, once we get to game mode, I'm more concerned about game planning and what's going to be done to attack an opponent as opposed to anything else. That's sort of my thought process. I want to see, okay, what, are we, what do we like? And then find out why do we like it. Okay, so we've done this, that, or the other. TCU many years ago in 2015, we had all these different things that we suddenly were doing in practice that we had not done in games the whole year. You know, I asked Coach Gundy the next day, I said, okay, it looks like you've got a lot of new stuff, and there were 19 new plays. Normally, there's five. That tells you everything you need to know. And TCU looked like a team that had no idea what was coming. So when we hit James Washington with all those deep balls. So that, once the season starts, this time of year, I'm just, I mean, I'm kind of watching all the, the, the drill work, the, the team good on good this time of year because they do a lot of that ones-on-ones. You'll see a lot of, so I'm watching that just to see who holds up and just getting a feel for who's rotating in and out and becoming familiar with the guys. Once the season starts, I'm very much dialed into, okay, how are we attacking this opponent? And then try to find out, uh, get an explanation from the coaches, what, what are they seeing that's taking them down this path? Well, and so many fans probably think, oh, it's so easy to just put in 19 new plays in, no, a, in a week. nobody no. does that. No, but, you know, you can sit in Section 224 up there and go, man, if they would just run this route and that You've got to practice that for weeks before guys can just do it. Well, and then you look at the other side of it. You know, I think Tom Dorado gives me this message all the time because I talk, well, they look really good. You know, it's, it was raining this day or it's cold that day or whatever. Well, yeah, Oklahoma State is, you know, you've got good athletes and you're preparing and you look really good, but you also have Division One athletes on the other side of sure the field. You and, you know, I think today was a perfect example. We were talking and he goes, you know, Casey Dunn can drop the most perfect play that you know, is, has ever been designed in the history of college football that's going to score 100 out of 100 times. But if, uh, if an edge rushes that, you know, you design this play because they don't typically rush the edge, well, the one time that they decide to rush the edge and the tackle misses the block or it's a low snap or, I mean, there's so many different variations. So it could be the most perfect play. You could prep 19 plays, but you also, you're going up against really talented players on the other side as well. Well, let's flip it. I mean, the Fiesta Bowl last year was a classic example. Malcolm Rodriguez takes off and breaks coverage and goes and sits in front of the tight end because he sees Notre Dame obviously has the perfect play call, and he knows where the ball's going, and yeah. he goes and camps out and intercepts the ball. And the quarterback, I'm sure, Cohen had to be going back to the sideline saying, where, where did he come from? Absolutely. He's not supposed to be there. Absolutely. And that's the kind of stuff that happens. 
sometimes your guy's just not as good as the other guy. I mean, think about how Oklahoma hit those passes in the end zone last year. It was clear what their strategy was. Mm-hmm. We think our receivers are more talented than your DBs. So there are going to be times where you just throw it up and let them go make a play. It was very clear what they thought. That's what they wanted to do. Kennedy Brooks had two or three, maybe four long runs. I think he had about 100 yards on four of his carries. The other 18, 19, he got about yard point, you know, two yards, 1.8 a pop. So, yeah, there's other guys out there, and, and there are guys that can make extraordinary plays and guys that can recover, guys that can recover from something where maybe they've made a mistake. They've taken, you know, a, an ill-timed step, but they're so fast, so instinctual, they can recover. And I think sometimes that separates the, the really good teams and the really good players from the average ones, the ability to maybe get out of position for a moment but get back. Without yeah. much difficulty. Well, and you, and you think about, you know, quote-unquote perfect plays, especially when it comes to bowl games. You know, James Castleman comes to mind. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure no one expected him to line up in the backfield and make someone's helmet explode. Well, and then you take, again, you, you think, it, let's go back to the Fiesta Bowl. Yeah. Oklahoma State, and you heard the coaching staff from Notre Dame talk about it the entire three weeks prior to the game. Oh, my gosh, they do so much defensively. They do this, they do that, they do the other. When you have three weeks to prepare, look what happened in the first half. Mm-hmm. Three weeks versus one week makes an enormous difference. Three and a half weeks, whatever it was, makes a huge difference because you can get a gauge on what they're doing and prepare for it and rehearse for it. If you're in a one-week situation, that's an entirely different thing because yeah. you just don't have. You have a couple days of practice, and that's it. Bowl prep's different. I mean, I don't know what the numbers show now, but when Dana was here and we first went spread, you went back and looked at Mike Leach's bowl record. Oh. It wasn't very good. No. Why? Because you had a month to prepare, and in their case, it was different. They did so little on offense that you had a month to get ready for that. Well, you could get everything down pat. It's no big deal. Yeah. And I think even historically, they haven't done very well. Well, again, it's so simple. Well, shoot, there's not that much to prepare for. You stare it out. You just load it up. You just load up for about three or four weeks, get ready to go, and go play. Now, again, I don't know what his record. I don't know if that's changed, but I know I had researched that before that Alamo Bowl in 2010, and it was uh, it was pretty wild how poor their bowl record was at Tech. And, again, it goes back to the simplicity and the ability to prepare. And then the flip side of that is if a team is really complex, then you have the additional time to try to get ready for everything you're going to see. And I think that has – you know, something to do with why Notre Dame had first-half success. They had time to get yeah. used to and rehearse all these different looks. Well, I haven't, I haven't looked up the, the Texas Tech bowl record back then, but if you just look at Mike Leach, I mean, he's had pretty similar offenses throughout his time. He's 8-9 and nine in bowl games. In bowl games. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It, because, you can again, you can prepare. But in a quick turnaround situation, especially against Oklahoma State's defense a year ago, and it'll be true to some extent again this year, it's just a lot to prepare for. And – you had all these urban legend talks about opposing quarterbacks who said they had no idea what coverages we were in. I, I believe those are true. Yeah. I, I can't prove them or recite them, but there were, you, you heard that more than once last year that mm-hmm. you know, guys on our team that knew opposing quarterbacks would talk to them after games. It's like, oh, I have no idea what coverages you got. I have no clue what you're in the whole day. Well, I'd heard no mul- multiple times that we were running more of an NFL-style yeah. Oh, yeah. defense than anybody would run in college. We had the – elder leadership to that Malcolm Rodriguez. He's probably going in Detroit going, this is all we're running? <laughs> well, they, those guys grew up together. See, and, and, and we will have that luxury now to an extent because you're going to have a number of young players, Kendall Daniels, for example, being one, you know, Mason Cobb, uh, 
you know, you, you've got a little bit of a situation here. Xavier Benson, although he's a little bit older, he's a junior. As a JUCO transfer, you've got some young guys that can grow together. That's what happened with that group. Those guys, you know, they got kicked around in 2018. Colby Harville Peel, mm-hmm. Malcolm Rodriguez, Jarek Bernard, Converse Jarek Bernard at that time. Yep. Those guys played quite a bit mm-hmm. in 2018, first half of 2019. We started to see the fruits of the labor come into play second half of 2019, really starting, I think, with that Iowa State game in Ames at Oklahoma State 1. From that point forward, we just saw gradual but very noticeable improvement defensively. Just kept getting better and better and better and better and better. And, of course, all of last year they were fantastic. And I think with Coach Mason they will be as well. But, you know, in, in not all positions, but some of the positions, there'll be that growth process. These guys, you're going to have some guys that can play together at least for a couple of years and sort of grow up together, which, is, which was as rough as it was in those early years. That was a big deal because by the time they got to be seniors, not only did they have a lot of experience, they had so much experience playing together, mm-hmm. which is pretty unusual in college football. Yeah. So last year, I think I, think I had looked it up. I think it was seven, seven different games that we, had, that we gave up less than a touchdown in the second half. Yeah. I think I include TC, or who, I think it was TCU in that where it was the fourth string who gave up a touchdown. That, I'm going to add those to – did any of those games, as you're calling them, just – Surprise! I mean, a, a a Boise where neither team scores in the second half. How you've never seen that? Well, that was unusual. But that's you know, the thing about that game was I knew going in that was a plan. <laughs> what was the number? I'm trying to remember. Doggone it! This is such a good story. I can't believe I don't remember this. I'm trying to remember what the number was. But Coach Gundy told Casey Dunn. I I think the number was either 50 or 55 plays. On offense. That's all he wanted. He's like, whatever the number was. I think it was 55, maybe. 55 plays. I don't think Coach Dunn was like, what? 50- In the first half? No. 55 <laughs> plays. For the whole we game. We have got wow. to screw this game down. Wow. We don't have any receivers. Remember who we toted out there to play receiver. Yeah, you had uh, Cabinets had Kale to make Cabinus. the play at the end of the game to secure the game. Yeah. And we didn't know what we had with Jalen Warren. I mean, LD had just been injured. We really didn't know. I mean, we, we had seen a little signs. We didn't know what he was going to do at Boise. We had no idea that was coming. I mean, that was a huge unexpected bonus at the time that turned out to be just common living for us, which lived a charm life. So that was unusual, but once we got the lead, I knew that's what we were going to do, just sit on it mm-hmm. and let the defense. You know, Boise is really good at – game preparation in that early in the game you can't let them totally ambush you because they do a really good job of scheming up their opponents and having lots of things coming at you that you don't see coming and so if you look at them historically they're fast starters you can kind of survive that let the game settle in you're okay you just can't let them get too far ahead and we were on the cusp of that but you know, it, it took some getting used to for me. I mean, I'm so used to a lot of points being scored and our defense not being that strong that, like, at West Virginia and Texas Tech, you're, I'm kind of on the edge of my seat. And it's like, oh, we need more points, we need more points. And now I think finally maybe by the Tech game, it's like, no, we don't. I mean, we're just <laughs> it's we're just kind of here chilling. We'll exchange punts, yeah. and this, is, this will be over pretty soon, and these poor people will be out of their misery because that's pretty much what it was. It's kind of like catching a fish and letting it just flip-flop on the bank in the sun until it dies. Mm. I mean, you're going to die. You're just going to flip and flop on the bank and act like you got a chance, but you really have none. I mean, that's, that's what it was like, and it took some getting used to because we have not 
lived in that world before. Well, but and, and but the, then we get to do that in the and that happens in the Big Twelve Championship, absolutely, and in the Fiesta Bowl. That's yeah. a, you know, at that point you had done it what five times, and yeah. you're going, okay, there's no way we do it again. Yeah. Oh, we do, and then again in the Fiesta, you know, you get down early and you go. Where I, as a fan, I'm sitting there going, well, if we just hold them scoreless in the second yeah. half, we got yeah. a chance. And, and we did. did. Well, and you think, you know, it, it all started with Iowa State. You know, you had that breakout second half uh, against Texas, and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I think this team's going to be okay. And then you go up to Iowa State, and it is just grinded out, yeah. you know, slow football. Uh, you Sounds know, Sounds like every trip to Ames ever. Yeah, and it's an, it's an unfortunate loss. You know, I don't, I don't think it ended up costing them or anything, but uh, well, I guess technically it did. But, you know, it, it, in the time it was like, man, that's kind of a disappointing loss. And then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. But you're, you think about that defense and it's like, if the defense can just hold them just long enough, you know Spencer is going to somehow find a way to get the ball into the end zone, or Jalen's going to break a big run. Well, we had a good plan against Iowa State. I mean, Charlie Kohler was a non-factor. Yeah. You know, now, at the expense of doing that, uh, Xavier Hutchinson was really good. That was his That was kind of the gamble, but but you're not expecting that to happen. It did. Well, that's the way it goes. And we're in a great position to win that game, even at the end, you know, some thought that Presley may have got that first down. It was really close. Close. I, and, and, and so, what, who what knows? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, it's hard to it's know. A, it's I mean, a from our angle, now, you but. can't really tell. I mean, it's hard to know. It, it, was certainly, uh, it was certainly close. but And at that time, Iowa State was still, you know, I mean, they'd, they'd lost a couple of games, but they, you know, they had not fallen off. And then everybody, I think everybody kind of figured out how to play against them. You know, I, I think it was a lot of, throwing on first down against minimal pressure, taking your six or seven yards that way. And I think eventually people figured out, okay, that's how you play these guys. And then as time went along, you know, the real mystery was, are they going to start kind of going back old school and bringing guys up? Because they haven't done that forever. I mean, that's been the recipe for their success. You don't throw it over their head. Well, as teams started to figure out a little more about how to attack them, you started seeing them bring guys up, and then you started seeing Texas Tech, for example, throwing it over their head. And yeah. uh, so, you know, the, the cat-mouse game uh, that Iowa State was the cat for for all these years, the cat changed its stripes, became their opponents. And I think that's one of the reasons why you'll see, as Coach Gundy has predicted, more teams playing fast, more teams playing spread, because I think the Iowa State code to a large extent, I think, was broken last year. Finally. Yeah. I mean, it took a while. It took about five years, but I think the code to some extent has been broken. Uh, before we move on to a uh, more personal conversation, um, I want to kind of get your thoughts about the Big 12 uh, on a whole because this year, I, I feel like this year is going to be so much unlike any other year we've had. I mean, OU is going to have a new quarterback. Yeah. Texas is going to have a new quarterback. You've got, what, three Three teams with new head coaches. Kansas State has a new quarterback. They look different. West Virginia has a new quarterback. I mean, the the Big 12 on a whole is going to look just – I think Baylor. I think Baylor is going to have a lot of new personnel as well. So, I mean, when you look at OSU, yeah, they return a quarterback and they return some receivers and linemen. But, you know, Oklahoma State has a bit of a new look. But, I, I mean, if you look around, I, I think Oklahoma State's probably going to be the, the most sure team when it comes to personnel. So, your thoughts on the upcoming Big 12? Well, Spencer Sanders and – and Duggan at TCU are the only two yeah. Big 12 quarterbacks that have at least 10 career starts at their schools. I mean, wow. OU's got a transfer guy. K-State's got a transfer guy. Texas has brought in a transfer. You know, t- everybody, almost, yeah. it seems like. You know, K-State, you know, everybody, it seems like, Dan- has. Daniels at, at West Virginia. And, yep, there's yeah. another one. 
everybody has transfer quarterbacks. Yeah. So, so how's that play out? What's that mean? You know, I asked Coach Gundy the other day in, in the gathering, you know, a lot of teams playing fast. Is that because of new quarterbacks? And it's simpler? And he's like, well, I don't know about that. He said, I guess we'll find out whether he's in, a lot of times when, when your quarterback play is a little uncertain, you find out you can't play fast. You can only go as fast as your quarterback. So if it's true that some of these schools like Kansas State do want to play considerably faster, can their quarterbacks function within the scope of a faster offense? And then the one thing that's interesting this year, though, very quietly, mm-hmm. you know, the Big 12, I guess, the last two years has not had a first-round draft pick. Mm-mm. So you look at, for example, pro football focus and look at their projections. You could have as many as five, maybe even six Big 12 guys go in the first round this mm. year. It's a different dynamic. You know, K-State, the defensive end, possibly one of their guards. Bijan Robinson is another. OU, an offensive lineman. You know, there, there's some guys out there. It's, and, and, of course, uh, Ika, the uh, nose from Baylor, that kid's is, a is a monster. Uh, you know, and I think that uh, I think Jackson Player, the transfer from Tulsa, will have a huge year. It's like somebody told me the other day, it's the first time since second grade he hasn't been double or triple teamed because Ika commands all the attention. Well, player against one guy on a regular basis, that guy's going to be good. Yeah. I, think, I think I underestimated, underestimated Baylor initially. I think defensively they could be really good. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting league in that you have a lot of – you have new coaches, you have new quarterbacks. What's that translate to? Hard to know. Uh, but I do think the overall – I think there is a little bit more high-end talent mm-hmm. than what we've seen, just based on the draft projections. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at, you know, Iowa State, this will be the first year since 18. Oh, yeah. They haven't had a starting quarterback. Uh, in Kansas State, I mean, that's, I, I think that's going to be the biggest one for me because they're typically a grinded-out, slow-moving offense. They're going to run the clock. And then you get Adrian Martinez, and, and everything is going to depend on him. I, I know that they have some really good talent up there, but – if he can't stay healthy, if he, you know, I think he's had, a, I don't think it was you. I can't remember who I was looking it up. I think he has like 28 career turnovers or career fumbles. Well, I mean, that's it's a high number. If, if he's that good, why didn't he, you know, why didn't Nebraska have more success? I mean, Absolutely. that's always my counter to that is like, well, and no offense to him, but, right. but something wasn't right. And, you know, and I think K-State, just the background reading I've done on them, I, I, it sounds like across the board, they are the team who could really make or break based on how healthy they stay. If they stay healthy, they could be a team that surprises in the league. If they don't, they could be a team that probably slips off more than people might expect. It, it seems like just in the background reading that I've done about them, they're a team that really, at a lot of positions, can't afford to get guys hurt. That's true of just about everybody, but for them, I think it's a little more important than everybody else. Yeah. Of the four teams who are coming in next year, Houston, UCF, Cincinnati, and BYU, who do you think – who do you think gains the most by coming in? Houston, without a doubt. Houston, without a doubt. Because now, from a recruiting standpoint, they're on equal footing with the rest of us. For the longest time, they could recruit their tails off, and it was easy to say, well, you know, they're in the American. They don't matter. You want to play for a national championship? You want to play in the biggest games on national TV? Probably won't do that in that conference. No offense to them. Don't mean it that way, but that's the reality. Now they're on equal footing, and they've got players. I mean, it means Houston. I mean, they've, they're players all over the place, well, I think they, and they've we, had their share despite that. So, what is it, preseason no, they gained the most. 25, I think, this year? Yeah. The 25th, so, I mean, yeah, they're they, already there. They, they gained the most, without well, a doubt. 
at one point last year uh, in the in the top twenty five. I think all four of them at yeah. one point were in. Uh, we the Big Twelve did a good job of finding the best twos out there. You're not going to pull an Arkansas. You're not going to pull A and M back in. Yeah, you're not pulling anyone from a power five. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, I thought that they did. That was a, a great job. I mean, getting BYU out of independency mm-hmm. is thing that something the Pac-12 has been trying to do for a long time. Well, I think, and that's and that's something that you know. I don't know how far down the the expansion rabbit hole that we want to go, but you know, when you think about the Pac-12 now, they're trying to stay afloat with USC and potentially UCLA going. You know, you just mentioned Oklahoma State probably got, or not Oklahoma State, the Big 12 probably got the, the four best group of five type independent schools because you're not going to pull uh, Notre Dame. Right, right. There are, I don't think there are a collection of no, schools I, that is good that, as the Big 12 just got. I think that's probably the best you could do uh, of what was available. And, you know, the joker in the deck as far as the Pac-12 is concerned is what happens with Oregon and Washington. Yeah. It's hard for me to fathom with Phil Knight and Nike's deep, deep ties to everything in American sport that they're going to get screwed and just have a difficult time thinking that that could be in the cards. Yeah. They'll end up somewhere, and Washington will most likely be there with them because Washington, from a national success perspective, football-wise, has earned that. I mean, they, they deserve to be wherever that may be. They have earned that. So that, to me, is an interesting piece to this. Notre Dame kind of staying status quo. I mean, everybody's waiting for them. Are they going to make a move? Will they go to the, you know, would they go to the Big Ten? None of that's happened. Uh, You know, we'll see how quickly these television deals get locked up. And could we be done? I mean, could we be done for a long time? I think that's possible. I think we could be done for a long time. I don't think the SEC, I'm talking to friends in the SEC, they don't, I don't think they have any interest in doing anything. Uh, For one, they kind of like the group they have. Number two is... Television money-wise, you know, they don't want to split the pie into more pieces. I'm told that there may be some provisions that if they take new teams in, and I don't know if this is true, that the money amount just goes up. You know, you just add shares. Well, ESPN is not going to like that if it's a team. It doesn't bring that much value. Yeah, that money's they're not going to somewhere. agree to that. So, so there you go. So you just kind of like, okay, you know, outside of Oregon, Washington, you know, where do we stand? And, you know, does the Big Ten try to make another move? Do they try to take Stanford and Cal? Do they try to take Stanford and Virginia? I'm told they have an absolute infatuation with Virginia. I mean, we'll see. I mean, and then, you know, where's North Carolina fit in that mix? Because North Carolina, I'm told, uh, SEC, there would have to be bizarre circumstances of biblical proportions for that to even be considered. Yeah. So, and the ACC television uh, agreement certainly curtails a lot of this. You know, Florida State's got to get their financial ducks in a row. They've got some very serious financial issues there, and I think they'll have to prove to whoever courts them at whatever time that we're okay financially. So everybody sort of has uh, their issues. Oregon and Washington looking for a home. Uh, You know, what happens with Virginia, North Carolina, Florida State's financial issues? Uh, You know, it's... We may be done, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to continue to be interesting. Yeah, no question. Uh, we were talking a little bit here before we started recording. Uh, you know, what, what led you? Obviously, you have one of the better voices in the play-by-play game, so I think it was a bit of an obvious choice, but what led you into broadcasting? Oh, I, I listened to a lot of games as a kid with my dad before he uh, passed away when I, I was 12 when he died, and it was just something I, I was always fascinated by, by sports, 
and and not just the games. I mean, I love to play. I mean, we played in the backyard, and I played, you know, growing up and a little bit in, uh, in high school, baseball up through Legion Ball. But it was – I was fascinated by just the whole business of broadcasting. I mean, I had a big chief tablet, and I would, like, make up these – mythical television programming schedules for a day. I don't know why. I think it was reading too many TV guides. Yeah. And I would like, okay, this is the, and, and I would have sketched out half hour by half hour what was going to be on. Of course, as a kid, you had Wild Kingdom and the St. Louis Zoo Show and all that stuff. And then sports, I had kind of my own thing going. I was always fat and still am very fascinated and interested in the television side, the broadcast side, you know, why do you make the choices you make in terms of what goes on the air, what doesn't, why are schools more valuable than others, you know, what drives all that decision-making. That's, that's always been interesting to me. So it's been not only the on-air part, but the off-air part that really interests me. What would, do you remember your first game that you were the play-by-play voice? Yes. What was it? Yes, it was. I did color. I worked at a little radio station 24 miles. My hometown's Cahokia, Missouri. 24 miles west is Memphis, Missouri, rival high school. But that's where there was a radio station. And I worked there some as a senior in high school and then during semester breaks in college. And I, was, I did color for that first year when I worked there on and off. And then in the Highland Tournament would have been early January of 86. I finally had a chance to do play-by-play. And it was my old high school, Clark County, against Kirksville. And I still have the reel-to-reel tape at the house. Now I need to convert it. Yeah, and I don't do. know. It's been it's been in storage where the thing might fall apart as soon as you put it in the deck. But I do have it. Now I'm going to bet that a lot of OSU fans do not know that Joe Castiglione was a pivotal part, a part of you getting the job here at Oklahoma State. Is that true? Yeah, I'm not sure we want to talk about that given what's happened in the <laughs> in the last year. That might get me run off. Yes, yes, he was. I've known him. He was at Missouri as an administrator when I was in school and then when I was there afterwards doing pre- and post-game and have known him forever. And, yes, he was very instrumental, really went to bat for me uh, when this job was available and really encouraged me. I had some hesitancy because of the circumstances. Sure. And he, you know, I was about to just pull out and stay in Bowling Green, Kentucky, at Western. And he really kind of set me straight on a phone call in May of – 2001, it's like, uh, no, you need to do this. You know, he, he said it even at that time. He said, you're going to get this job. It's going to take a while, but you're going to get it. So if I didn't think you could do it, I wouldn't have put my neck out for you. It's like, okay. And, he's, and then he said, you can wait for 10 years and hope and for the next Big 12 job to open up and hope that the stars, in terms of all your connections, line up as well as they do for this one because – he was in my corner. Dave Hart Sr. was in my corner. You know, you had all these people that were deeply connected to Terry Don Phillips, the athletic director, and it was all lined up. And uh, so it sort of hit me. It's like, yeah, he's right. And, uh, and, it's, and he was right. It's worked out really well. Since 1958, there's only been four. Only been four voices of the Cowboys on the Cowboy Radio Network. Bill Platt, Bob Berry Sr., Bill Teagans, and Dave Hunziker, oh. the, the longest tenured. There have been 12 people who have walked on the moon. Wow. <laughs> I think they've done that since 1958. So. I think some people early in my career wanted to ship me to the moon. That might have worked. That might, that might, maybe that wouldn't have been such a bad idea. That is pretty wild. Right. But you know what? Here's the thing, though, guys. It's funny you bring that up. 
a guy that I still stay in contact with in Virginia from when I was at Radford. He had a big lumber business, and he was a sponsor, and he's a dear friend. He played tennis at Marshall's. The guy's name is Kevin Stoner. Great guy. I mean, unbelievably good guy. And he said, at one time, I'd maybe been here eight, nine years, and he said, here's the deal. He said, and he grew up, he went to Marshall, Marshall fan, you know, followed WVU, still has cuss words for WVU because that's just what happens. I mean, you're on one side of that or the other in West Virginia. But he said, here's the deal. Coaches come and go. Athletic directors come and go. Presidents come and go. What stays the same? The voice. Absolutely. That's the guy that stays. And And that's really become very clear to me as former players come back and the only people they know are John and I, or in some cases, just me. They don't know it. And Marilyn Middlebrook, that's it. Right. And maybe, if, and maybe Big Mike Notewear. That's it. They don't know anybody else. Because everybody else is gone. So and, when you're like when Tony did, Allen, hardly knew anybody when he was back. Yeah. Well, it's because everybody's gone. So when you, when you go through you know, your, your time here in Stillwater, obviously there's no been, there's, there hasn't been any controversy. You know, it's, you've done a, a really, really good job. Obviously, some of the, the biggest plays in Oklahoma State history, whether we're talking football or basketball, you are associated with, but you've gone through a couple of athletic directors. Has there been any, like, well, I don't know if, if they want to keep me, or has there, has there been any worry with, with position changes like Mike Holder uh, from Terry Don to Mike and then Mike to Chad? Well, there was, you know, Terry Don was – it was a year, and he was gone. And then Harry Birdwell came in. Now, I had no reason to think that Harry would want to, to make a change, but was there some anxiety? Yeah, he's not the one that hired me. And, you know, Terry Dom was not an Oklahoma State guy, and nor was I, and then suddenly you're bringing a guy in who's deeply rooted here, and so your, your thoughts running through your mind is like, oh, boy, I wonder for somebody else in this equation, but I can't control it, so you can't worry about it. Just go do your job, do it well, don't worry about it. And I didn't. The thought ran through my mind. That, you know, hey, if, if something happens, it happens. You just can do the best you can and not worry about it. I had a feeling that the Coach Holder thing, though, would be really good. And, and as the years went along, because I, I had the impression, and this was right. I talked to Terry Don Phillips about this, actually. I hope Coach Holder, now that he's gone, I can tell this story. I talked to Terry Don. I said, okay, so Coach Holder, help me out. And he said, you know what? If you do your job and do it well, He'll leave you alone. You'll just be free to do as you wish. And he's not a guy you're going to have to go in every two months and tell him how great he is. He already, he's done everything he needs to do. He's already great. He doesn't need anybody to tell him. He's built that golf program from nothing, built a world-class golf course. He doesn't need anybody to tell him he's great. He's earned it. And he doesn't need to be told. He's earned it. And I followed that advice, and it was good advice. And, and he did let us just go and do our job, and he trusted us. And... We had some great conversations and candid conversations. I mean, you know, guys, some of the thoughts he had, you know, we were talking several years ago about, you know, sort of the, the conflicting, the collision course in some ways between fan-based college football and television-based college football. He was spot on in terms of they may not necessarily be the same, and they're not, as we've learned. So, yeah, and, and then with Chad, I'd known Chad. Geez, Chad was a – he might have even been a graduate student when I came here and worked in the posse office. I'd known him forever. I'd seen him when he was at K-State and visited with him and at Texas Tech, and I felt really, really good about that uh, because I, I just – a lot of connectivity, and, you know, I knew he would be really good. I knew he'd be very savvy 
he would bring a lot of things to the table, a lot of knowledge from his history in the business, you know, a tremendous basketball knowledge. I think uh, it's just a matter of time before he will be the first member of the NCAA men's basketball committee we've had since I've been here. We've not had a member of the NCAA football playoff committee or the NCAA men's basketball committee in my 21 years doing the game. So, well, basketball uh, just runs so deep in his family. Oh, that, that's when he'll be, and everybody knows that. So, it, he'll, and he's, he'll, so I yeah. think it's just a matter of it's just a matter of when he goes into that role, and he could do the football thing as well. But I think people just know his basketball history and roots are so deep. He'd be awesome on that committee. So that day will come, and then you know he's always had obviously had presidential changes. I, I knew Burns Hargis a little bit from his ties to the Board of Regents and, and being involved in Oklahoma State before he was hired. Dr. Schmidley was great. Uh, Dr. Halligan, I still see at the legacy where my in-laws live. Now we get a chance for he and his wife, Ann, just to visit casually. And I still find many of the things he has to say really interesting. He's a very, very wise man and very savvy. Went on to a career in politics after he got out of higher education. And Dr. Shrum's awesome. I, we had a great visit this morning uh, just for a few minutes. And uh, Lots of energy, really smart. You know, somebody that's close to Dr. Shrum said, and, and this is so true, and I, and, I, and I loved hearing this. I think our fans will too. She is so far forward-thinking. As, as this person put it, when everyone else is playing checkers, she's playing chess. And I think we've seen some of that already. Absolutely. She's just really forward-thinking. And, uh, you know, doctors are not dummies. So if you've managed to get through medical school and get through all of that and lead a prominent osteopathic yeah. medical school, then you know what? You're sharp on sharp on sharp, and she is. Well, That's right. And you think about the, the tandem that, that is Dr. Casey Shrum and Chad Weiberg. I mean, just this past year, some of the things that they've been able to secure and able to do, and, and I, I think over the next two to three years – I think the sky's the limit for this university and athletic department. Well, and, and, and you know, we have to get things settled down. You know, it, it, it just, I say we need to get things settled down. Things will hopefully settle down. You know, conference realignment, NIL, transfer the, portal. The world in general. Yeah. I mean, the world, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of conflict. And, and so once things settle, we kind of get back to a little bit of ordinary living. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they'll shine. They've shined very well given the circumstances, because, oh, my gosh, I mean, if you were to, I mean, Chad and I did an interview back in June. It's like, huh, we didn't expect, this isn't what you signed up for, is it? And I, oh, that, was, that was the first thing, right? The first thing that him and, and Dr. Shrum dealt with, right? Was oh, the, yeah. Was OU in Texas and then the NIL. And, oh, and then conference, re, you yeah. know, you got, you know, so you got the OU Texas conference realignment and then NIL. The and Four schools getting added. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was a whirlwind. And then, of course, you you go through a 12-2 and two season and you beat a top-10 OU and you beat a, a, a top-five all-time program in Notre Dame in a New Year's Six and play for a conference championship. It was unfortunate. But, I mean, it was a really good first oh, year. It was a really good first year. And we had success, you know, you know, beyond, obviously, football. We had some other programs that did well, too. Softball, yeah. obviously, jumps out at the top of the list. And cross-country had a good year. And, and it's, again, I don't think either of them would have remotely anticipated yeah. going through what they've gone through. But, you know, you just sort of roll with it, and, and we'll see where all this stuff lands. I mean, it's, it's changed so fast. It's like so many things. It, it, you just kind of keep waiting for someone just to uh, blow a whistle and wave their hand and say, okay, timeout. Wait a second. Timeout, timeout. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> whoa, wait a second here. 
we'll see how it all plays out. I, I don't think – I think there's a thought that we are stuck with this NIL the way it is forever. I don't believe that. I don't I, I'm one of the few that, that feels that way, but I don't believe that. And I do think, and I know people in this part of the country don't agree with this, but at some point somebody has to stick their nose out and jump in front of it. And I think if they can get any momentum, I think Joe Manchin and Tommy Tuberville, opposite sides of the aisle in the Senate, are going to try to get that done because both of them are deeply ingrained in college athletics and I think can explain to those who aren't, hey, here's what you don't understand about all of this because I think there's so much information out there about this that's, that's unclear. Not to say that student-athletes shouldn't have a chance to sell their name, image, and likeness, but, but there's got to be – it can't be, in my mind – just flat out pay for play. It no. just can't. That the viability of that long term. Jamie Pollard was quoted yesterday talking about that. The athletic director at Iowa State. He has said this. Coach Gundy said this. That just is not viable. It's not. It will never work, and it can't sustain itself. Yeah, I, I mean, when you look at guys like you know Spencer Sanders, and, and he's not here anymore, but like Chuba and Tyler. Yeah. When, you, when you look at Colin Oliver and Trace Ford, these guys are, are helping bring in the millions of dollars that Oklahoma State is, is making each year. So, I, I'm fully on board. I mean, if Spencer wants to go out and set up a table in front of X, Y, or Z and sell autographs and take pictures and, and make money that way, I think you should be able to do that. You put your name on things, and, and I love that, but I mean, when you're looking, and OSU does it because it's allowed now, you know, when, sure. you, when you look at collectives. But when you're talking about Texas Tech's going to pay all their players $25,000, uh, the SMU deal announced yesterday 36000 every football, every basketball. Um, the, was it the Pancake Club, I think is what it's called, the Texas, uh, Texas Longhorn Offensive, offensive Lineman. Deal. It's like $65,000 a year just to be on the offensive line. So, I mean... You should be able to sell your name, image, and likeness, like you said, but the, the pay-for-play is where it starts to get really sticky. Well, and here's where it went sideways. Dear friend of mine does Atlanta Falcons play-by-play. And I asked him the other day, I said, how many Falcon players in Atlanta have substantial endorsement deals? And I said, enough to matter. It doesn't have to be big. Enough to matter. He said, three, maybe four. On the Atlanta Falcons in the number five media market in the country, home base for Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, Georgia Pacific, the Home Depot, and a whole bunch of others. And they got three or four dudes with endorsement deals? And you're expecting college guys to get a bunch of endorsement deals? That's just not realistic. It's not practical. I think there was, and that's no offense to these college players. I don't mean it that way. But if you're talking about three or four Atlanta Falcons getting endorsement deals, and you think a bunch of college guys are going to get them? I mean, shoot, it's just not practical. It's just not. I mean, I, part of what I've done is work in advertising and marketing as well as a broadcast. I just know from talking to advertisers, and I've had this conversation with advertisers, they have a really hard time with it because student-athletes have such a short shelf life. They're only here for a couple of years, and they're gone, and any good ad campaign could take a year to 18 months to really settle in and be effective. By the time you get to that point, they're gone. Yeah. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's no offense to the players. I don't right. mean it that way. But from a realistic marketing advertising standpoint, a lot of times it just doesn't make sense. And that's a hard thing for people to hear. But the Atlanta Falcons example, to me, makes that very clear. Yeah, Only four absolutely. guys the Atlanta Falcons have endorsement deals. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. Well, and when you look at, when you look at colleges, especially you know, schools in, you know, like, let's say Oklahoma, you know, there's not, you're not dealing with Coca-Cola or Home Depot. Or any, there's no big, big industry here. So when you think about some of these guys, 
I think everyone at some level is going to benefit from NIL. Now, whether you're Spencer or, you know, Colin Oliver or whatever, but you've got your third and fourth strings, you've got your walk-ons that are, you know, they're getting deals with a local mill. You know, they're going back home. Yeah, maybe yeah. there's an insurance agency that sure. wants to pay 500 a month or whatever. But even that, I mean, that's, that's so insignificant. And then you look at programs that are paying – you know, twenty five, thirty six, fifty plus thousand dollars. You've got clips that are coming out, and we knew this was happening at the Big Blue Bloods anyway. But you get you get clips coming out of you know analysts or graduate assistants or whatever at A and M talking about see those seats up there. There's a lot of money in those seats, and they're gonna, it's going to be coming your way. So when you're dealing with you know multi million dollar recruiting classes, you just can't compete, and and it's technically legal. But I, I don't know how much longer it could sustain. No, I, I again, and then all the states have different laws. You have states with different income taxes. Absolutely. You know, state of Texas and Florida don't have income tax. Well, kids getting paid forty or fifty thousand dollars. There's a couple thousand dollars difference between what he takes home in Oklahoma versus what he would take home in Texas. Yeah. So you even have that piece of it that comes throw, into play. Throw California into all that, and it's they're even, taking fifty percent. Well, yeah. yeah. So it's a disadvantage. You know, and then it's interesting. I have a guy I grew up with in my hometown in Missouri has been a college football coach his whole career. He actually is in the Missouri State Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. He was a really good pitcher and probably would have made it to the big leagues. His name's Kirby Cannon. Probably would have made it to the big Great leagues. Great pitcher name. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Oh, and he Cannon. taught my brother and I how to throw a curveball, and I couldn't throw it that well, but, boy, my gosh, he could pitch. And if he wouldn't have got hurt, he probably would have made it to the big leagues. But anyway, he's been head coach at Missouri Rolla and Austin P, and never made it above – one double A as a head coach was actually on staff at Central Michigan. Really? He left there right before we played them the first oh, time, which wow. would have been ultra cool because he married my sister's best friend. So very connected to him. But when all this NIL stuff started, he said he's at Northern Michigan now, Division Two up there where I bet it's absolutely gorgeous and not nearly as hot as it is here. I, I have a feeling that's the case. But at any rate, he we were connected just messaging back and forth. And he said when the staff even at Northern Michigan got together, Right after all that happened, he said, USC, we all agreed, USC and UCLA just got a whole lot better. Absolutely. And oh, my gosh, was that – this was a year and a half, a little over a year ago. That's spot on. Because, again, you have so many resources, you know, and, and, and that money, you know, cost of living. If you take a job in Los Angeles, right, and you get paid $200,000 to work there versus getting paid $100,000 to work here – you may not take the job because when you factor in cost of living, you may be better off here, not to mention all the other reasons. Yeah. But just looking at it financially, well, the thing is, in the NIL world, they have no cost of living. So if the kid's from Oklahoma and they're able to put up $200,000 compared to the $100,000 here, he just sends that money back to Oklahoma. And it spends like $200,000 in Oklahoma versus if he were living out there and had cost of living – that $200,000 would be like $100,000 here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that changes, changes everything. Yeah. I mean, it's so, of course, UCLA and USC got better. And then Miami starts throwing money around to Nigel Pack and whoever else. And, but it's, a, again, all of a sudden, those big market teams, because of the dynamics of their economy, the availability of businesses, et cetera, et cetera, it's, they, they get better quick. Uh, I'd like to take you back to that first year, if if I could. Yeah. Obviously, a, a very tragic situation, and and Stillwater was a it was a very you know it was a very sad time in in Oklahoma State history. But what was what was that first year like for you? Oh, everybody was just so nice and supportive. I I just kind of put my head down and did my job, and it's like, well, whatever happens will happen. But 
just just do your thing and and pay attention and listen and I was really lucky I worked you know part of the time in the posse office and then part of the time doing the broadcast that's how Terry Don was able to put a package together for me and and it was really great that he did that because I you know the way things were designed I don't know if I could have done it otherwise mm-hmm. and so you know he was nice enough to do that but the good thing about that posse thing is I not only not got to know a lot of great people in the posse staff members like you know Jackie Butler now and uh, Ellen Ayers who've, who've been there even dating back those 21 years uh, Chad Weiberg was around and you know and, and many others Dean Lee who became athletic director at Arkansas State those are great relationships to make from the start and others, Jonathan White's another one who's no longer in athletics but was awesome to, to work with. But I got to go to all these donor events. We, you know, we went out and did a zillion caravans with Les Miles, and so I had this immediate opportunity to build connectivity with our fans, and that was incredibly important. You know, you, you got to know, you know, and, and one of my responsibilities was the car program. So I got to know people like Corey Bowker and David Dyson and Bruce Barber and Jurgen Jansen and, you know, many, many others. Uh, you know, gosh, uh, C.J. Montgomery and the, the guys over in Woodward and lots and lots of different people that I connected through either the donor events or the car program or both. And that really helped me, I think, sort of establish myself. Just go do your job well. Be, you know, be kind, respectful, and, and thoughtful and just let things fall where they may. But I think... They really set me up to be successful by giving me the chance to be in the posse office and do those things where I could really build a lot of relationships. You know, Gary Sparks was a person that I instantaneously yeah. hit it off with. And, and we, I still consider him a really good friend, dating all the way back to those early years. And, you know, Craig Clemens was a guy I worked closely with. And, you know, on the Next Level Stadium campaign, I did a lot of the PR writing and communications plan and all that for the Next Level Stadium campaign. I did. Yeah. And because I had a PR background and a marketing background, so I was happy to use my skills for that. And it's just a lot of people. So, you know, they really put me in a position to get through that pretty well. And I'm, I'm grateful for it because I think had it been set up in other ways, let's say had I worked at the television station in Oklahoma City and tried to pull this off, I don't think I could have done it. I don't think I would have made it. Well, and, and that also puts you inside the university, inside the athletic department. And so many Oklahoma State fans feel uh, the the coaches need to be from here because they get it. That really puts you on the inside. And and I'm not saying that's a correct, you know, uh, way to do it because Mike Boynton has obviously not from here, but he gets it. And that puts you on the inside so that you can feel that while you're calling games. You're spot on. And and that's what I was used to. And that's what I told Terry Down when we were talking about this because – there had been some talk about me possibly anchoring in Oklahoma City. And I told Terry Don, I said, I am, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for that, but I haven't anchored in a while. And number two is I'm used to being on the ground in the department. I mean, I was an administrator and broadcaster at Western Kentucky. They'd made me an assistant AD before I left, running the radio network day-to-day, running all the marketing. At Radford, I oversaw sports information and sports marketing was an administrative role there as well as a broadcast role, and it's what I was used to. Now, I wasn't going to be, you know, a senior administrator here, and nor did I have the credentials for that. I'd done it at the smaller schools, but I was in no position to do that here. But I was so used to being at practice on a daily basis, being around where I could build close relationships 
with the coaches, being around the athletes where you see them at the academic center and slap them on the back and see them around town, things like that. That's how I knew to do the job, and I thought trying to do it differently in any way would not be the recipe for success. And Terry Don totally understood that and, and supported it and did uh, everything he could and, 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 and did a lot to, to make sure I was set up that way so I could understand the culture, get to know people, be at practice, be around, be in the Stillwater community. And I think that helped me because, truthfully, they had not had that here in a long time. You know, because Bob Barry and Bill were tremendous announcers here, but obviously they had jobs in Oklahoma City. They, they were not living here. I think that's the thing that really helped me, too, is that by setting me up the way they did and allowing me to live in Stillwater, I think that made an enormous difference for me in my circumstances coming here. I think it made a huge difference. And there's so, so many universities where the fans only know the play-by-play guy, but here it's known as Dave and John. When, yeah. when, when did John come into the fold? And, and my follow-up to that, when did that chemistry really was, – was it a road trip? Was it oh, just Oh, we always had it. We did the Bedlam game together in 2002 because Tom Dorado was with basketball in Alaska. And that was a year where Sean Woods went nuts. Yes. And we did that he's, game together. And he's still open. He is still open. Yeah, people – I used to go on caravans and say, if you're – I understand people have been looking for Rashawn Woods – if you would look behind the Oklahoma secondary, I'm sure you will find him somewhere. Just Still that's there. where you need to look. And so we did that game together. He came in for football when Coach Gundy did, and as Tom decided just to focus on basketball. And then he took over in basketball after 07. But from day one, he and I hit it off just in casual interactions. And, and when I di- used to help with the blitz on, you know, a, a weekly basis, you know, he was anchoring it with Dean, and I would be doing a report from Stillwater, and, and we just hit it off from day one. Kids are the same age. We're almost the same age, very much on the same page on lots of different things, and so that was pretty darn easy. And, you know, it's just, it's just continued to grow as time's gone along. Have same interests. It's, there's lots and lots of things. So as the, as, as the offense is sped up from 2007, <laughs> 2008, Dana Holgerson kicks it into high gear. Monken takes puts the foot on the accelerator again. Did you two have a? It, was that an easy transition to you getting quick? Well, it, it was because he's a television guy. He's perfect for that because he's used to saying a lot in very little time. TV guys don't have a lot of time. They have a two minute and ten second sportscast or a two minute sportscast or a minute and thirty. They have to be so efficient. Well, when you're going fast, efficiency is everything. And so many times he just. He didn't even try to get in between plays. Just mm-hmm. let me go. And I was so grateful for that because it made my job easier. But the fact that he was a television guy and understood saying a lot in a very small window was incredibly important to keeping that thing on the rails when we were going super, super fast because he was ideal. I mean, because, again, you know, he could say a lot in five seconds. Most guys can't do that. So Tulsa 2011 – on Friday night, I got married. Oh, wow. Sunday morning, I'm going to Jamaica with my wife at 5 a.m. to the airport. Oh, we're in postgame. <laughs> you were on the Actually, 420s when we went off the air. So 413, whatever it was. We, we, uh, I was packing, because I'm not going to say I was packing before the wedding for the honeymoon. I was I'm packing still not packing. For, for Saturday night, I was packing. As you guys are doing four and a half hours of pregame, that night there was some, okay, there's going to be storms, there's going to did you even prepare for four and a half hours? Did you? Well, I knew what was coming because one thing I, I, I've always done 
is I'm very, very attentive to the weather forecast mm-hmm. because you need to know what you might be dealing with for all kinds of different reasons. And I had checked the forecast the day before. I had notified Learfield in Jefferson City where our network is hubbed. I said, hey, guys, we, there's a pretty good chance we're going to be dealing with some storms, so just be ready, and we'll see how this plays out. Well, that day was my daughter's birthday or the day before, and we got her a viola for her birthday from the Tulsa Violin Shop, I think was the name of the place. So we went over Saturday morning, and I drove separately, got her outfitted for that. She was so fired up. And so they turned around, went to Stillwater, and I ran a couple errands and got something to eat. Well, the, here, here's the wild card net. My daughter's young techies, as they were, convinced me that I needed an iPhone. And I thought, I don't need a dead gum, stupid iPhone. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank heavens, the week before on that Sunday, I got an iPhone oh, for the first time because it let me really keep track of what yeah. was going on. So I'm sitting there. I can't remember where I was at in Tulsa, and it was only like four in the a- or maybe two in the afternoon, whatever it was. No, actually, it was later because that was a scheduled 9 o'clock kick, whenever it was. And I'm eating dinner, and it's like, oh, my gosh, this is really going to be interesting because this weather is for real. And it was wave one, wave two, it just and just kept I think on third, going. Yeah. And, and, and what was unique about that was in normal circumstances, you might let the network take over with some taped programming. You might just do feature interviews. But because of the lateness of the game, there was a very strong feeling that that game may not be played. And I told those guys at the network studio, I said, we are not going to anything taped. I said, this is, this is a news situation. This is not your ordinary storm delay. This game was supposed to kick at 9 at night. We got A&M the next Saturday in College Station. I don't see us sitting around waiting until 1 in the morning to play this game. We are going to keep tabs on this thing. And that was kind of my plan even from the start, even going back to Friday, is it? If this thing gets delayed significantly, this could get really interesting, and we need to just be ready to cover this like it's an ongoing live news event. And that was our approach. We never went to tape programming, as you just basically were inferring. And it's probably one of the proudest moments of my career because there was a lot going on. Robert was unbelievable in the locker room with interviews, keeping tabs on what was going on. We had people coming into the booth. We were really trying to keep people updated because there was – it was unique. And again, a normal storm delay, like a year or two later, we were at Baylor and had one. And what I did then is I had a bunch of interviews lined up for people to join us. I had a taped interview with Coach Underwood. It was 16. We ran that, and then I had like five people lined up and said, if we go on a storm delay, we're going to call you. And so we had Billy Badgema on. We had Coach Littell on. I don't remember who all we had, but that's part of the planning thing. I mean, that, that, believe it or not, that's all thought through. I can remember... We thought we were going to have a long storm delay at Kansas one year, and we didn't realize the weather was going bad until we were driving up Friday in the evening, and my aforementioned daughter was on the phone texting people saying, hey, could you come on tomorrow if we have a storm delay? And so you just try to get things lined up. Because I don't really like to go to tape programming because you, don't, you, you, you want to be able to just jump in and say, hey, this is what we're dealing with. It's a storm delay. Here's what we anticipate, resumption of the game. I don't like to go to things tape because – you want to be able to continually update people that might be coming in for the first time. Hey, why aren't you hearing the game? Here's why. If you go to something taped over an extended period of time, you can't do that. When you look long, at, long answer to your question. You, you talk about how you know that one of your you know probably the proudest moment you know in your career. When you look at your tenure at Oklahoma State, obviously you know having Mike Gundy for you know ninety eight percent of that 
the success that he's had, it's obviously made it a lot easier. That there's no transition period or anything like that. If you had to go through your career, obviously there's some pretty high notes. You know, 2011, you look at the, the Bedlam wins throughout the years, you know, last year's Bedlam. If you had to pick one moment that, you know, this, this was either the coolest or this was, this was our best moment, you know, calling a game. As a broadcast team, yeah. yeah. Any, and it could be basketball as well. But, I mean, if, if we're just talking football, if you had to pick one moment that you could say, you know what, I, I don't know if there's anything right now that could top this moment. Oh, boy. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to go and kind of have a tie here. I'm copping out. Bedlam, for obvious reasons, last year, not to take anything away from 2011, but with last year's team, it wasn't expected. And for me, Notre Dame and the Fiesta Bowl. As a kid, growing up in North Missouri, watching the Notre Dame highlights, you know, I'm Catholic, although I don't like Notre Dame. I, if they played Boston College when I, was, when I was younger, I'd always root for BC. I've sided with the Jesuits. And so... Notre Dame thing was really cool for me. I was jacked, and, and Robert and all those guys can tell you that. I was absolutely jacked that we were going to play Notre Dame. Yeah, Robert still talks about how good, you know, how the feeling of seeing those gold helmets. Oh, I mean, because you can't schedule them. Mm. You know, I think there was a time where we tried to schedule them, and they, of course, they wouldn't. I mean, they don't have that many availabilities to begin with because they have certain teams they really have to play. So you never get to play them. And so what a... You know, what an incredible opportunity. And then to come from way behind like that and beat them. So probably a tie for those two, to be honest. I mean, that's kind of a cop-out. But, but sort of have different reasons, different purposes. Well, when you think about it, I mean, 2011 is, is so iconic. You know, I mean, it, you're, you're coming, it's, what, 10 years or so removed. Or, well, I guess it'd be 20 years or so removed from the, uh, uh, you know, 10 and one And, you know, the, the program had come so long so far. I mean, that was such a great year. But when you, when you think about last year, um, you know, going into it, I mean, there wasn't other than Spencer coming back, and, and you had you knew you were going to have a good defense, but I, I don't, I can't quite remember a whole lot of hype going oh, into last geez. year. You're, you're thinking like, like the top of the top, maybe ten wins, and, and I oh, think that would shoot. be a stretch. I wasn't thinking that, man. No, I, I mean, I, like I left. Stretch. I left the I left the last full scrimmage before we Sunday night scrimmage that night, and I went home. I said, we're not any good. Yeah, I mean, we're just not any good. I mean, we, we look bad, yeah. and, and, and we didn't look very good the first two weeks. I, was I mean, say, those, those things sort games. of played out. Those things didn't surprise me yeah. because that's what I thought I'd witnessed in practice. We just did not look very cohesive offensively. And then, as is the case oftentimes when you have a lot of zone blocking, it can go from really bad to really good quick. Yeah. And then come to find out, Jalen Warren was something even more than we thought he was. Spencer continued to grow and develop, just get better and better. Offensive line, as you had those new pieces come together, you know, Godlewski getting settled in. Uh, obviously, you had Josh Sills to his right. You know, and, and part of it, too, with that offensive line was your, your practice schedules, even dating back to COVID, had limited the number of reps that those players had. So there was perhaps the potential for a greater leap improvement-wise as those guys got experience because – you know, you go back a year and a half for some of those same guys, they lost a spring of reps and then a completely jacked-up preseason. Then you only play 11 games instead of 13. When you start, you know, punching in the experience numbers, yeah. by no fault of their own, they were further behind than they should have been. Now, probably a lot of teams across the country like that. So probably in hindsight, the opportunity for substantial improvement with last year's team 
in the middle of the season was probably greater than you would ever expect from any team because of all of the unique circumstances, the transfers, the screwed up season before, the lack of a spring in 2020, all of these things came in to play in a situation where suddenly you saw a team just get much better as the year went along. And we benefited from some things. The quarterback play in the Big 12 last year wasn't very good. A lot of guys were hurt. A lot of guys were young. Then you take our defense and throw that on top of it, and it was like putting gas on a fire uh, yeah. because you had a lot of quarterbacks who were just completely overwhelmed by what we were doing. Yeah. And I think that's where we transition a little bit back to this team uh, with the offensive line. The offense, to me, is going to go where the offensive line takes it. How fast can they gel as a group? Because you don't have a lot of guys coming in with – Starting experience, there's a couple. Wilson, there's a couple that have been here, but you bring in a Weber. Etienne, yeah, he's been here, but he hasn't started. If he's a starter and you well, got he Weber, hasn't really played. He had COVID, right, COVID right. and Juco. It's been about two years. Yes, so, it has. So I know Spencer, you know, kind of went off to Robert the other day, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. A quarterback should, honestly. A quarterback always should for his offensive line. But the faster that they can gel, the faster this team, this offense, I think will look even better. Yeah, and I think I think – I think they'll be okay, and, and I think they've played enough. Most of them have played enough and played enough together that I think they'll be okay. I, as is the case here pretty much all the time, you probably need to avoid injury there. Sure. Uh, you can't have the Tulsa calamity of two years ago when yeah. you lose both starting tackles in a matter of two quarters in the opener. That didn't, you know, I don't know how we ever got through that. That's amazing that we did what we did that year. We just got hit with so many things, and we managed to survive it. But, yeah, I, I get the impression, you know, you know, we'll see. But I, but I, think, I think chances are we'll probably, I think we'll probably be okay. And, again, circumstances are better this year than they would have been last year for all the things we talked about. Yeah, and Coach, Coach Gundy is so good. He, everybody thinks of him as, man, he just wants to Mike Leach style, put the gas down and mm-hmm. go. He's not always that way. He sees what kind of team he has. And, and even in those, that Boise game, everybody goes in saying, well, just go over the top of him. Go over the, he says, no, 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 55 plays, keep it low, that kind of a well, approach. And so many times I have to explain this to people, things I do nationally – he wants to run the ball. Make no mistake about it. We may line up in four wide. We may go tempo. He wants to run the ball. I don't remember exactly what the percentage was last year, but it was probably in the 63 64% range. A lot. Same was true the previous two years. You go back to his early years, 06, 07 with Dantrell Savage. You know, in 06, 07, you know, we were starting to run some of this, you know, it was more Larry Fedora's offense, but it was a little faster tempo, a little more spread stuff. We ran the ball more than any team in the conference. You know, people were stunned by that. It's like the team that's run the ball the most in 2006 and 2007 was Oklahoma State. And I think over the last three years, I would wager that that's definitely been the case the last three years. I'd need to, to do the numbers to, to make sure that's accurate, but I would guess that's probably still the case. He wants to run the ball at the, at the end of the day. There may be a lot of other window dressing and things that you see, but at the end of the day, he wants to run it. And even even with Dana Holgerson uh, here in 2010, Kendall Hunter still had 1,500 oh, yards. Oh, yeah. And what, well, a, what a great offense for a guy who's that shifty, that fast. We'll, we'll spread them all out and then I, let him do his thing. The legend is, is that Leach told Dana Holgerson, he said, uh, you might have the best back in college football, so I, I think I'd just get the ball in his hands. And he's talking about Kendall Hunter. In fact, well, in fact, I, I know he said that because Mike was doing Sirius XM at that time, and I was on the air with him. He says, hey, I told Dana, like, 
that Kendall Hunter might be the best back in America. You just need to get him the ball. And he did, and it worked out really well. Dave, we kept you a really long time. Oh, that's okay. I really appreciate it. One last thing for me. Um, I'm going to kind of handcuff you a little bit. If you had, to go, if you had to go through your, your tenure here in Stillwater, the, the top five most exciting players or, or players you enjoyed during your time, if, and maybe not in any particular order, but if you could just say, like, I've, these five guys right here are the most exciting, thrilling guys I've watched. Oh, gosh. Well, Des Bryant definitely has to be on that list because he was an unbelievable physical specimen who was so hyper-competitive, and that's why I think initially he was misunderstood in Dallas. Des, in my mind, cared about two things, playing football and winning football games. I don't think he could have cared less about anything in life. Uh, and, and in a college environment, that can be a little tricky. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's all he cared about. God love him, and it showed the way he played for the Cowboys. It took those guys some time. They thought he was some kind of enigma. I was like, no, he's not. You know, people would say, oh, Des this, Des that. I said, guys, he wants to play football, and he wants to kick people's butt. That's all he cares about. It's what, all the right stuff. You have to sift through what mm-hmm. looks like something else to understand where he really is. That's what he wanted to do. And didn't he get used to get so excited before games he had to get the IV? Before what he would cramp in It wouldn't in surprise me. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, so he comes to mind. Yep. Um, you know, Whedon has to be up there. I mean, sure. Whedon is just such a unique person. Older, settled, nothing bothered him. He loved to converse and be with people. He was so comfortable being around people, uh, so easy to visit with. Uh, you know, and that is, you know, that has continued into his professional career and beyond. He's just, just so easy, and and that makes it uh, that makes it lots of fun. So there's two. So now we've got it, and boy, now we're really now I'm really having to split hairs here because there's a lot of really good ones that that roll to mind here. Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, you probably have to put Brandon Pettigrew on that list. I mean, he, he was a part of this thing really getting rolling. I mean, he was an, an incredible tight end and did some extraordinary things. That catch and run he had against Tech in 07 yeah. was unreal. 30, I mean, it was, 30 minutes before the rant. Yes, correct. Very good. Uh, so, so, obviously, you know, he, he jumps out there as somebody who, who was, you know, very prominent, very significant. Malcolm Rodriguez has to be on that list just because of what he was, who he was, and the fact that he was just so doggone productive all the time and tackled everything in sight. He was just so much more than anybody ever would have expected. But once he started down that path, you started to see that this guy's just going to make every single play well, and, you go and back line to, up his teammates and do everything right and just be all about the right stuff. You go back to his, his freshman year, you know, I mean, he's a he, – not recruited at all. I think he had yeah, two nobody offers. You know, he's playing safety. He's smaller. He's getting burnt. He's not that fast. And everyone's just like, what are we doing? Why are, why are we lining him up at safety? Why are we playing him? And then you line him up at linebacker. And then, oh, by the way, let's stick 50 pounds on him. I mean, I, I can't think of too many six-round draft picks. Like This past weekend, he was lining up at, with the ones uh, in Detroit. Six-round draft pick less than a week into, fall, into training camp. I can't think of any six-round picks that are lining up with the ones at the end of training camp. I was I was in the elevator at Texas, 2000. What would that have been? Nine, 18, 19? When we went down there, Spencer's nineteen, uh, nineteen, nineteen. Saturday night. Game. I, w- yeah. I was I was in the elevator with Malcolm's parents, and that he would just become 
you know, the middle linebacker, and he was still, we thought, undersized and all that. And I, asked, I just asked him, I said, how do you guys watch the game? Do you watch it with kind of, you know, through one eye, like, oh, please don't hurt him? And his dad spoke up right then and said, he'll be fine. Give him a minute. Give him a little bit he to was. figure out the rules of the game on the inside down there, and he'll be just fine. Yeah. He gets that, that confidence came from, from above him, from the parents, and we saw that play out. Yeah. Another example of Coach Gundy and Rob Glass understanding what a player can be versus what he appears to be in high school. Yeah. What can he be? Not what he is, not maxed out weight room-wise because he's played at some elite school in Texas that has every resource known to man. What can he be once we get our hands on him? Uh, James Washington comes to it's, mind. Oh, he's a classic example. My other guy would have to be Kevin Williams. I mean, no yeah. one was more dominant. Mm. The last seven games of 2002, he dominated in a way that only Indomitian Sue has dominated since I've covered college football. He was absolutely unblockable. Well, and I he destroyed everything in his and path. And he didn't really get a chance until his senior year, until that last year. You know, year. he was he was playing, but but what happened was we moved Bill Clay moved him and put him in one spot. He and LaWayland Brown were going back and forth between the 2 and the 3 technique. And I'll never forget when he did it. You know, I was meeting with Bill going over plans for the game. He says, "I'm just going to leave Kevin." He says, "I think that's going to be going to be the best for him and for us." Oh jeez. From that point forward, that was he was unbelievably good. Well, I think he's been a, I think a six-time Pro Bowler. You know, he's in the the uh, the Minnesota Vikings Hall oh, of he, Honor, Ring be, of Honor. He'll be in the maybe even more than six. He'll be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, guys. I, yeah. th- I think he'll be in Canton. I think he was that good. I think he's headed to Canton. Really good. Well, thank you very much, Dave. Oh for the yeah, time this was this fun. Afternoon and. Hopefully we can uh, reconnect at some point during the season. I, l- I love, you know, maybe a bye week or something like that whenever your well, schedule we a, isn't got an crazy. open week last week of September. Well, there we go. How right, about that? Right ahead, so, of, right ahead of Baylor. That's thank right, you, guys. Right I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you stopping in. Dave Hunziker, uh, that's going to do it for the Pokes Report podcast. And uh, you can always check out. I, I, I'm really excited about this year. Uh, I think he started last week. We'll have one this week. Uh, Pokes Report is going to be the only place you can hear Xavier Benson. He's the Pokes Report uh, sponsored athlete this year, so you uh, will have a journal with him every single week. You can check in with that, and we'll have a video journal with him as well. So that's going to do it for the Pokes Report podcast. We will talk to you next time here on PokesReport.com.